Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. <laughs> Hello, everyone. It's Ryan coming to you from uh, the New Books Network, uh, Native American History Channel. We're going to be discussing Thunder in the Mountain by Professor of Law and History at Vanderbilt University, Daniel Sharfstein. Again, Thunder in the Mountains from Daniel Sharfstein. Welcome, Professor Sharfstein. Thanks for having me on the podcast. First, let's discuss the cover, okay? Um, you have a pretty striking photograph of Whitebird Canyon, as well as composite photos of, uh, of Howard and Joseph. Um, uh, can you tell us more about how the cover was um, assembled? When I was at the point where we were discussing the cover, uh, uh, I was asked to provide as many images as possible to give their designers some ideas. Uh, I... Howard, Oliver Otis Howard and Chief Joseph were both photographed uh, many, many times over the course of their lives. Uh, I sent a ton of photographs of of both of them uh, to the press. Uh, And then I also uh, sent a number of photos of the landscape uh, at various points along the Nez Perce Trail. Uh, In the course of researching the book, I traveled the entire trail. I took lots and lots of pictures, and I was looking at those pictures at the, a, a lot of the time as I was writing the book. And uh, the photos they selected uh, included a picture of General Howard uh, at a relatively young time. Uh, uh, so he was in the Civil War uh, when this picture was taken. It was after his arm had been amputated, his, his right arm, uh, and he was a relatively young man in his, in his 30s. Uh, and then they chose uh, a picture of Chief Joseph. It was uh, important to me that they selected a photo of him that was pretty close in time to the Nez Perce War. Uh, there are many, many pictures of him uh, photographed towards the very end of his life, uh, uh, almost 30 years later. And they chose a photo uh, from fairly soon after the surrender. Uh, The the photo they chose that I took of of the landscape was a picture from Whitebird Canyon, which was the site of the first battle in the Nez Perce War. And Whitebird Canyon is uh, accessible uh, from the pretty close to the top of the canyon, uh, off the main road, uh, and there's kind of a scenic uh, overlook, and you can see the whole canyon as it uh, ripples down uh, towards Whitebird Creek and the Salmon River. Um, but there's another entrance at the very bottom of the canyon. Uh, it's very unassuming, and there's a, a, luckily a, a really nice, uh, nice guide and uh, self-guided walking tour. And so I was walking in Whitebird Canyon uh, in the summer of 2013, and uh, this 
uh, was a photo from a point where um, uh, it, I'm looking towards Whiteford Creek and the Salmon River. Uh, it would be the direction that the uh, the U.S. Army would have been facing, uh, and uh, it, it was from a place where uh, really the the first shots in the war were fired. Um, so let's uh, start exploring a little bit of the book and your approach to the study. Um, how did you approach the history of the 18, 1877 Nez Perce War? Uh, how did how did you approach narrating, framing, researching the 1877 Nez Perce War? Uh, does your title, which is again "Thunder in the Mountains," Chief Joseph Oliver Otis Howard? and the Nez Perce War. Uh, does Thunder in the Mountains refer to Joseph's uh, Nez Perce or a Nimiput name, Thunder Rolling in the Mountains, or something more? So again, how did you approach the study, and can you can you elaborate a little bit more on the title? So uh, I'll, I'll say about the title, um, Thunder in the Mountains definitely is a reference to Chief Joseph's name. And even though this was a... Uh, uh, in many ways, a dual biography. It's a, a story of Oliver Otis Howard and Chief Joseph. Uh, I, I've always thought of uh, Chief Joseph as as the heart of the story. I think I also viewed uh, the the war as really the heart of the story. Uh, and the, the Chief Joseph's name, and also uh, the descriptions of the war, which was fought in very mountainous terrain. People would describe it with all kinds of uh, naturalistic metaphors. You know, people would say uh, that these battles, it was like uh, a hailstorm, or uh, it, it, and people described the, the tolling of, of guns and of cannons uh, as, as thunder. Uh, so I felt like it, it was a, uh, a good way to signal the primacy of, of Chief Joseph's place in this story, uh, and also uh, uh, to think about the, the war and the importance of, of the setting of this war. Um, in terms of my, my approach to the history of the war, uh, I think that there are two things that I particularly focused on. Um, there have been many wonderful histories of the Nez Perce War, and people have been writing about it really from the time it happened. Uh, and it, in many ways, I mean, just decade after decade over the past 140 years, uh, it, you know, the, the fascination uh, with the Nez Perce War and the, the, uh, the desire of so many people, whether they're in academia or out, uh, to, to write about it and talk about it and remember it, uh, remains very, very uh, strong. Um, what I wanted to do, first of all, uh, was uh, bring in uh, Oliver Otis Howard's perspective in a more robust way. Um, so for me, the Nez Perce War has been something that I thought about has been sort of part of my consciousness really from the time I started to read. Uh, one of the first books I ever read was a, a child's biography of Chief Joseph that my mother gave to me. Uh, it, it was part of a series of lives of great Americans and, you know, it was uh, uh, 
George Washington and George Washington Carver and Helen Keller and Chief Joseph, among others. And uh, but what really drew me into the story uh, was the connection to Oliver Otis Howard. So my my first book was in many ways a history of Reconstruction and its aftermath. Uh, and the nation's transition from slavery to freedom and then to Jim Crow. And Oliver Otis Howard was an important character in this uh, by virtue of his leadership of the Bureau of Refugees, Freedmen, and Abandoned Lands, the Freedmen's Bureau. And in the course of uh, researching the earlier book, I found a series of letters to Howard uh, that were written in the heyday of Reconstruction uh, with one of the main figures in my book. Uh, and then there was this 10-year gap, and in 1878, there's a letter addressed to Howard in Portland, Oregon, uh, saying, uh, what's life like in the West? Do you think that Washington Territory would be a good place to relocate freed people from the South? And I read that, and I thought, wow, you know, what's Howard doing in Portland? Uh, he was a Maine Yankee. He was a, a consummate Washington figure during Reconstruction. And Portland, Oregon uh, was about as far as you could get from Washington, D.C. and still be in the continental U.S. And then in the back of my mind, I thought, when was the Nez Perce War? Uh, and when I realized that uh, Howard had led army forces against uh against the Nez Perce families, um, it, it seemed like a very important story to revisit uh, because I, I'd always thought of the Nez Perce War as uh, a war that the U.S. waged uh, against uh, people who were led by a great civil rights icon, Chief Joseph. And understanding that it was Howard who led the Army forces, re really, this is a war that one civil rights icon, uh, Oliver Otis Howard, the namesake for Howard University, uh, led against another civil rights icon. And to me, that, that spoke volumes about the pivot that America was making uh, away from Reconstruction at the end of the 19th century. Um, so Howard's perspective, understanding how he could go from championing African-American civil rights to waging war against Nez Perce families that seemed very important to me. You know, if you read Southern histories, Howard uh, is uh, comes off as a flawed person, uh, to be sure. Uh, but I think I, I would define him pretty firmly as a flawed hero. Uh, he, you know, he was, uh, in uh, William McFeely's phrasing, he was the Yankee stepfather. He had all kinds of limitations at, of imagination and administrative ability, uh, but he was remarkably committed to the enterprise of African-American freedom and equality. Uh, so it, that's the perspective in Southern history. If you read Western history, it, it Howard comes off very, very differently you know, as a uh, comically inept general, uh, as a scourge of the Nez Perce people. And you know, reconciling the two General Howards, uh, that was a big uh, impetus for, for my work. Um, the second 
approach uh, that I brought to the book uh, was really focusing on uh, Joseph's work as an advocate. Um, so in the five years before the Nez Perce War, from about 1872 to 1877, but from the time when settlers really started coming into the Wallawa Valley, Joseph had countless occasions to advocate. And I mean, in, in certain ways, it, you know, very early on when he uh, decided to knock on the doors of settlers' cabins and lean-tos and introduce himself and inform them that they were trespassing on his people's land, um, you know, he was informed that under a treaty signed uh, in 1863, the Wallala Valley had been ceded to the United States, it had been put into the public domain, it had been uh, surveyed and divided up, uh, and the homesteads were being given away. So 1872, I mean, in many ways, that, that feels like it could be the end of a story. But once gover the government has given away something, once they've given away the land, it's really hard to take that land back. And uh, instead of regarding this as an ending, uh, I was very intrigued by the way that Joseph took this as a beginning. Um, you know, he faced daunting challenges. He was a young man. He, he, you know, in the world, the you know, the constellation of Nez Perce leaders. You know, it's a remarkably egalitarian and broad-based uh, uh, structure of of governing. You know, he was relatively low on on the on the hierarchy. Uh, he, you know, there were many other. Uh, leaders of other bands who had uh, much more seniority uh, as uh, it, you know, much more experience as fighters, much more experience hunting in the, the plains to the east of the Bitterroot Mountains. But uh, Joseph really took it upon himself to try and reach out to the federal government uh, and explain why his land had been mistakenly and unjustly taken away from his people. And, you know, that, that's really tough when you're in the Wallala Valley, a couple thousand miles away from Washington, uh, surrounded by mountains that were so steep that when the settlers came in, they had to take apart their wagons, haul them up the mountain, reassemble their wagons, and then, and then coast into the valley. Uh, so figuring out uh, who to talk to, uh, figuring out how to get your words to leave the valley uh, and connect to the nodes of power. Uh, th this was uh, certainly the, the cause of Joseph's life in the five years before the war. Uh, his experience uh, connecting with and, and negotiating with the federal government colored his experience of the war. And then, you know, at the end of the war, he uttered his famous surrender statement. He said, I will fight no more forever. But in many ways, he kept fighting. He kept trying to reach out and negotiate with the federal government. And he was constantly trying to advocate for a better deal for his people. And you know, thinking about how he was able to do that, uh, it, you know, to me, it said a lot about 
the structure of American power and the way it was uh, uh, very, very diffuse in the decades after the Civil War, uh, right as the administrative state is is emerging. Uh, and, you know, in, in certain ways, uh, I, you know, Chief Joseph is... He, his, his message uh, is it can feel uh, very modern. You know, the way he talked about rights, the way he talked about the kinds of freedom and the kind of equality that every American should expect. You know, his his conception of citizenship that you know it, I think initially began as a conception of, of Nesper's sovereignty, uh, but then it kind of moves into citizenship and rights. Um, but at the same time that his message was was modern, his methods were uh, also. You know, it really he's he's making a plea for citizenship, for liberty, and for equality uh, in an age of big government. Let's talk a little bit about Howard. So following the 1873 failure of the Freedmen's Bank and an acquittal in the Freedmen's Bureau inquiry, Howard negotiated with several Southwest Native communities and then became head, as you've already alluded to, of the Department of the Columbia River in Oregon Territory. How and why did evangelicalism and this new post contribute to Howard's conception of freedom? from the sole fear that government aid might foster dependency to the growing concern that the absence of government might actually in turn, uh, uh, and the absence of government assistance may also form a, also foster a form of dependency. Uh, how did Howard in a related fashion conceive of the Nez Perce in the context of citizenship and equal protection? So Howard's conception of freedom um, how it changed, and then uh, his conception of the Nez Perce in the context of citizenship and equal protection. These are great questions. Um, so Howard was someone who, uh, you know, he was a Maine Yankee. He was a, a teetotaler uh, from from the beginning, uh, and he uh, graduated from. West Point in the mid-1850s and uh, was uh, immediately sent to what he thought of as the worst, most remote posting imaginable, uh, Tampa, Florida. Uh, He described Tampa as a a field for self-denial. And while he was in Tampa, uh, while he was trying to find Seminoles in the Everglades unsuccessfully. He would go through the Everglades and not see a soul uh, while he was surrounded by people who were, uh, you know, just dropping from the, and you name the fever. Uh, while he was battling depression, uh, being separated from his wife and baby boy uh, uh, by a thousand miles. Uh, that's when God uh, reached out and touched him. That's when and God really spoke to him. And he had this sense that you know God had uh, uh, had reached out to him uh, for a reason. You know that uh, he was placed on earth for a reason, and then he was just trying to figure out what it was. Uh, and when the Civil War was beginning, uh, it, 
it, it began right as he was thinking about leaving the army, uh, going to seminary and pursuing the ministry. But the war, uh, it, it seemed like that was a path that was revealing itself. That he thought uh, the cause of union you know, must be why God had, had singled him out. And very early on, uh, he was uh, promoted uh, uh, to Brigadier General without having been in battle at all. Uh, and it seemed like this was right. But then he started to revise his, his conception of his, his religious and moral purpose. Uh, and what really affected him deeply was the fact that when he was commanding troops in Northern Virginia, uh, there was this constant stream of people who were crossing Union Army lines in pursuit of freedom. Uh, he spoke to many of them. He had this dramatic encounter where uh, a woman and her baby came across uh, Union Army lines and was pursued by a woman who demanded her property back. And that's when he realized he, he hadn't been a, a particularly political in terms of uh, abolitionism, but that's when he realized that the abolition of slavery, that the cause of freedom uh, would be, it was really his, his purpose. Uh, very early on, he thought that uh, African Americans should be armed, we should be fighting in the Union Army. Uh, he was very impressed by the people who came across Union Army lines, their ingenuity in, in, uh, in their escapes. Uh, and he was convinced that uh, not only should they be free, uh, but that they were equal. Now, he had uh, he, he had very, a very limited sense of uh, what the Freedmen's Bureau could do. I mean, to to a certain extent, uh, he was he, you know he couldn't imagine beyond the basic Republican Party talking points about the links between government aid and dependency, uh, the sense that the Freedmen's Bureau would have to be uh, very limited and very temporary uh, in its scope. But at the same time, he remained remarkably committed to a very unitary sense of equality. He wasn't someone who, unlike other abolitionists, was slicing and dicing equality into political equality and social equality. Rather, uh, he viewed uh, African Americans as uh, equal and fully capable of, of every privilege of citizenship. And to his mind, in the absence of much government help, uh, it, he would pursue policies that would allow African Americans uh, a fighting chance to leverage themselves into a position of meaningful equality. So first off, he was deeply committed to education and funding education, funneled a lot of Freedmen's Bureau money into education at all levels. And when the uh, when a group of uh, influential evangelicals proposed opening a, a school to train preachers in Washington, D.C., uh, who, who came out of the freed people. Uh, Howard really uh, 
spearheaded the effort to broaden uh, that the, the scope of that educational institution to reconceive of it as a full university you know, with a, a college and a normal school to train teachers and a law school and a medical school. Uh, it, and so, it, you know, it was almost a given by the time uh, uh, he, uh, it, by the time Congress chartered the institution uh, that it would be named after him. You know, he funneled a lot of money towards Howard University uh, but he also had this vision of equality and how to achieve it when maybe the government wasn't quite up to the task of being particularly supportive of that. Um, you know, the other uh, the, the other mode of leverage into equality, at least in the earliest days of the Freedmen's Bureau, would, was through the potential redistribution of hundreds of thousands of acres of confiscated rebel land. And Howard tried to do that and uh, and and tried to essentially root African-American equality in property ownership. You know, as small freeholders, they would be able to uh, be independent of the, their former masters. They'd be able to support themselves. They wouldn't be the victims of the uh, markets for uh, employment and for uh, international cash crops, uh, but President Johnson uh, rescinded that order, and Howard didn't have the imagination not to be a good soldier and go along with it. He was someone who, uh, when he realized that uh, he wouldn't be able to, to redistribute the land, that the land would go back to the former title owners, he thought, well, uh, it, you know, I can help do the next best thing, and no one who would replace me, I could resign, but no one who would replace me would be as sympathetic as I, as I am to the freedmen. Um, now, moving west, uh, you know, in many ways, Grant's peace policy uh, enacted a fantasy of reconstruction for Howard. You know, Howard had been thwarted in many ways. You know, he had been initially denied the ability to redistribute the rebel land. Uh, so African-American equality instead was rooted in their, instead of their property rights and their contract rights, uh, and they would essentially be established as a landless hireling class. Uh, but in the West, uh, he had the ability to put Native Americans onto reservations and establish them all as small yeoman farmers. Uh, to the extent that uh, he, he felt thwarted uh, in the provision of government services for the freed people, uh, he had the ability to coordinate all kinds of services uh, for, for the Native Americans. And in his mind, uh, he was able to pursue a path of peaceful resettlement onto reservations, essentially, it, you know, we would say forcing people onto reservation. But in his mind, the alternative was genocidal warfare. So he thought of himself as really being on the side of the angels. And he thought that once Native Americans were firmly established as farmers, uh, that they would have uh, full access to 
the rights of uh, citizenship and had a full claim to equality as as citizens. But as we know, uh, once he got out to the West, uh, his theory about what the the peace policy could do uh, and his fantasy of it met uh, a harsh reality. So uh, in terms of uh, Joseph Joseph's Nez Perce band, uh, you've alluded to this earlier. How did they promote an idea of uh, heterogeneous equal protection and citizenship that included polyamorous relations and multiple avenues for band membership? Yet did how, how did their same p- petitions from the Nez Perce band uh, demonstrate what you describe as the wilderness of American uh, power. So, can you discuss their uh, petitions leading up to the war, um, really briefly? In the five years leading up to the war, uh, there were uh, Chief Joseph basically tried to find any federal official he could possibly find, and uh, what he was saying uh, to them was that his people had signed an 1855 treaty. Uh, that guaranteed them the Wallawa Valley, but that uh, the 1863 treaty that ceded the Wallawa Valley had only been signed by bands of Nez Perces who were 100 miles away in Idaho. Uh, Wallawa Valley was in the far northeastern corner of Oregon. And he would say that uh, Nez Perce bands were autonomous bands. They were spread out over a large geographical distance, basically from the Wallawa Valley in Oregon all the way to the, the Bitterroot Mountains, uh, separating uh, Idaho from Montana. And uh, you know, they were autonomous, and the bands that signed the, the 1863 treaty, not only were they separated from his people by mountains, by Uh, a canyon, Hell's Canyon, which is deeper than the Grand Canyon, Uh, but they were also uh, Christian converts, Uh, so they just lived very, very different kinds of lives. He said they couldn't possibly represent uh, his his people. Uh, So, you know, the pleas of his band were uh, a plea that their representation at that treaty council uh, was was necessary for it to bind them. How and why did uh, the fall 1876 killing of uh, Will Houtia, accused, he was accused, a, a Nez Perce man accused of pilfering settler horses, as well as reprisal raids by Hualitis, precipitate the Nez Perce War? For several years in the mid-1870s, uh, the, the settlers were... Uh, and in the Wallawa Valley and in the Grand Ronde Valley, just to the west of the Wallawa Valley, uh, they were, uh, uh, in certain ways, you know, beating their own drums of war, uh, saying that uh, it was impossible for settlers and uh, Indians to coexist. Uh, they were calling in the cavalry, and there was a sense that uh, the that war was inevitable. Uh, but when the cavalry came in, in 1874 and then 1875, what they found was 
uh, Joseph didn't look at them as enemies or potential combatants. Uh, he thought of them as just another set of federal officials he could negotiate with. So he had met uh, with the Indian agent, the civilian Indian agent. He had met with supervisors of Indian affairs for Oregon. Joseph had met with uh, a congressman who was home from recess. And then he saw these uh, these army officers, and uh, he viewed them just as another path, another voice that could that could bring his words uh, to Washington, D.C. Um, and they talked to him, and uh, the reports came uh, out of these cavalry officers saying that Joseph was committed to peace, uh, that he was more reasonable than the settlers. Uh, you know, at least one officer, Stephen Whipple, who was, who was writing these reports, he was not, uh, he, he was not programmed to really sympathize with, with Joseph or with any Native American. He had cut his teeth in the 1860s uh, massacring Native Americans in, in um, Northern California. But he spoke to Joseph, he listened to Joseph, and he said, I think Joseph is right about his legal point with the 1863 treaty, and he's also very reasonable. And I think a, a lot of the cavalry officers and the soldiers were just relieved to, you know, they were prepared for war, they were frightened, people were deserting on their way into the Wallawa Valley, but they encountered Joseph and they, they realized that uh, it, here was a uh, a partner for enduring peace. Now that began to change in the fall of 1876 uh, when there was a um, uh, a confrontation uh, in the Wallowa Valley where a settler wound up killing uh, uh, a young uh, Nez Perce man. Um, and uh, you know, at at the time, it was thought that. Uh, I, there would be all kinds of uh, uh, bloodshed uh, that would uh, be, that would flow from uh, the the uh, killing of of Wilhotia. Um, but again, uh, soldiers came in, and there were more negotiations, and it seemed like uh, it, you know while the government had been. Uh, uh, had been pushing Joseph to relocate to the reservation and was saying that the 1863 treaty absolutely applied. Uh, the result of the negotiations in 1876 seemed to be uh, a reopening of the case. Um, Oliver Otis Howard actually had, uh, you know, heard the reports and and uh, went east to Washington and. He proposed to to reopen negotiations and to finally resolve the the uh, uh, the Wallowa Valley problem, uh, which in the wake of Custer's Last Stand, the the uh, uh, Battle of Little Bighorn, uh, he identified the Wallowa Valley as the next flashpoint uh, for a big Indian war, and to a certain degree. Howard's move, uh, it uh, it promoted it, it was a, a mode of self promotion, uh, and it allowed him to address certain issues head on 
that he had been uh, really uh, uh, raked through the coals over during Reconstruction. Um, so, uh, you know, a lot of people would make fun of his uh, uh, abilities as a general uh, during the Civil War. He was called Uh Oh Howard instead of Oh Oh Howard, uh, but uh, but he was uh, able to uh, advocate for himself in Washington D.C. that uh, not only was this going to be a big war, but he was uniquely qualified. Uh, as someone who had had a pretty good track record uh, of convincing Native Americans to move on to reservations, that he was the man for this job. Uh, also, he had been faulted in many ways for fiscal impropriety during Reconstruction uh, with the Freedmen's Bureau. And newspapers, Republican and Democratic, uh, reported that uh, by reopening this situation, and renegotiating and resolving the Wallawa dispute, uh, he could save the government tens of millions of dollars that otherwise would be spent in a in a uh, in a war. Now, uh, he went back to the Northwest. Uh, he had assembled a uh, a committee that was empowered to to negotiate this the the final status of the Wallawa Valley. Uh, so essentially. You know, Joseph felt he had succeeded in kind of reopening this situation. But when Howard got to the Northwest and was face to face with Joseph, uh, Howard said, you know, we are not going to let you keep the land. Uh, what we really are here to do is negotiate a good price for the Lalawa Valley. And you're still going to have to go to the reservation. And, you know, if he had been able, if Howard had been able to succeed in getting Joseph to sign on the dotted line, uh, in many ways, he, he kind of viewed this as uh, a moment of grand redemption uh, for everything he was faulted for during Reconstruction. And with that in his grasp, uh, Joseph said, no, no, we're not going to accept your terms. We're not going to move to a reservation. Uh, we're not here to sell the land where our our forefathers are are buried, uh, and uh, Howard uh, reacted uh, very negatively to this. Uh, what he said was, "Well, if you you persist in this, uh, you, you can't uh, uh, you can't complain if evil happens to you." Uh, and he went. Uh, reported back east, and the final plans for forcing Joseph's band uh, onto the reservation took shape. Um, that spring in 1877, he gathered, uh, Howard gathered all the bands that were resisting moving onto the reservation. Uh, he uh, was, uh, it was, he presented uh, uh, his position as a fait accompli. Uh, he demanded that the, uh, the that the bands that were uh, resisting the reservation uh, move onto the reservation in 30 days, which, uh, given their enormous herds of horses and cattle, and also given the uh, the state of the rivers that they had to cross, they were all at flood stage. Um, uh, this was a, a really uh, difficult demand. 
And when uh, a leader of another band uh, complained, Howard had him jailed. Uh, and so there was this ultimatum that Howard had issued. There was this very aggressive posture that he has, had assumed against people who had always been peaceful with the United States and had always found a way to negotiate their way around difficulty. And uh, you know, Joseph uh, made the trip uh, with his band across the Snake River, across the Salmon River. They lost uh, hundreds of, of head of uh, horses and cattle, but no one drowned at least. But by the time they, they reached the, the border of the reservation, in June 1877, uh, people were uh, demoralized, they were despairing, they were very angry, and, in, and it seemed like they were going to enter the reservation, but in a blink, uh, that, uh, that ended uh, when a group of young warriors uh, decided to go on a revenge-killing spree uh, against people uh, in the Salmon River Valley, uh, who had uh, been uh, abusive, uh, who had murdered Nezper's people, uh, who had cheated them in stores, uh, and that uh, put the U.S. on uh, a war footing, uh, and and uh, it seemed there was no turning back from that. Can you uh, discuss the uh, inaugural battle at Whitebird Canyon, which is the subject of your photo on your cover? So the inaugural battle at Whitebird Canyon, as well as how the uh, war came to an end at uh, Snake Creek. And then in this context, uh, can you also briefly uh, discuss the uh, Nez Perce reburials, as well as the uh, trade and material culture after the battles, in which General Howard would amass a large collection of Indian artifacts. So the Whitebird Canyon battle, um, how the war came to an end, and then touch upon the trade and material culture and the reburials. After the uh, initial killing spree along the Salmon River Valley, uh, the Nez Perce bands that had gathered to move onto the reservation, uh, instead they they uh, they moved away. They moved to a, a traditional campground uh, uh, near the Clearwater River. They moved then to uh, uh, another place, which was a uh, a cave where they stayed, and then finally they moved to the uh, bottom of Whitebird Canyon at a uh, a traditional campsite that was reasonably well protected. Um, and the, uh, but while they were moving around, uh, whenever they encountered, there, there were warriors and war parties out that were uh, fighting and killing settlers uh, in the, the, uh, an area called the Camas Prairie. Uh, in in Idaho, and uh, the army uh, was Howard was was waiting uh, at Fort Lapway uh, on the Nez Perce Reservation, uh, expecting Joseph and and uh, his band and the other bands to to settle. But when word came about these killings in the Salmon River, uh, he uh, sent word to uh, gather troops from the entire Department of the Columbia. Uh, and beyond, uh, and 
he, while he was coordinating the arrival of troops and supplies for a major military expedition, he sent out a uh, couple of cavalry companies uh, to try and uh, relieve the settlers who had holed up for their protection uh, in a town called Mount Idaho. Uh, when they got to uh, uh, to uh, Grangeville, Mount Idaho, um, settlers saw the army and said, we know where the Nez Perce bands have gone, and you've got to get them now. Uh, they're at the bottom of Wiper Canyon, and you know what they might do is cross the, the Salmon River, uh, maybe even cross the Snake River and head back into the Walla Valley. Uh, there are, you know, if you uh, let them get across the rivers now, it's going to be much harder to catch them later. So, uh, so the settlers really pushed the army to try and confront them in Whitebird Canyon. Now, the army, to get to the settlers, they cavalry had ridden all night long. The soldiers were exhausted. The horses were exhausted. Uh, but then they kept going. Uh, and uh, for another night, uh, essentially made their way to Whitebird Canyon. And in the early hours of the morning, uh, they, uh, in uh, uh, June 1877, they made their way uh, down the, the steep uh, paths of, of Whitebird Canyon uh, towards the bottom. Uh, and at daybreak, uh, a Nez Perce peace party uh, approached the the uh, cavalry companies that were uh, also supplemented by many settlers, uh, and they approached with a white flag uh, in an attempt to uh, negotiate uh, a peace before war broke out. Uh, but uh, the the settlers uh, started shooting, uh, and then the uh, army started shooting, and at that point. Uh, couple things seem to become clear. One, uh, the cavalry uh, could, uh, be, you know, they, they couldn't hit the side of a barn with a bullet. Uh, they had very little training uh, with, with firearms. Uh, often, uh, they, you know, the army was reluctant to have any training with firearms because it was just a waste of bullets. Uh, they, uh, so they didn't know how to shoot. Uh, they were uh, uh, highly undisciplined. They depended on buglers and the uh, to to transmit signals from the officers to the men. Uh, and early in the battle, uh, the Nez Perce warriors, uh, you know, at least the ones who uh, uh, you know, very few actually were able to mobilize and fight. Uh, uh, on short notice, early in the morning, many of them had been had been drinking, uh, uh, you know, before uh, the the uh, before the battle. But the ones who were awake were able to kill the buglers very quickly, uh, and then no one had any way to communicate with each other. Uh, very quickly, the Nez Perce had Nez Perce warriors had. Uh, uh, flanked the, the army, uh, the settlers who were guarding the flank just ran away. 
so quickly that uh, uh, the Nesbitt's warriors wondered if, if they were real, if there had ever been anybody uh, uh, on the flank. And then the army soldiers uh, panicked and had to retreat. And what they realized was you know, they had come down the steep canyon. And now in retreat, they actually had to run uphill uh, very steep. And it was really hard to do. And the Nesbitt's warriors who go up and down mountains and canyons, uh, had, had much more experience with that terrain. Uh, it was much easier for them to go uphill, and it was much easier for them, uh, even with uh, the, you know, much worse weaponry, uh, to kill dozens of soldiers. Uh, and at the end of that, it, it seemed... Uh, you know, about a third of the cavalry uh, had, had been killed, uh, and the rest uh, uh, you know, kind of found their way to the Camas Prairie. And it seemed after that, uh, the, it, it was going to be total war. Uh, it also meant that the Nez Perce warriors had uh, a cache of weapons and ammunition that they didn't have uh, at, at the beginning of the battle. And uh, it was uh, a, a lesson for Howard that bold army action uh, it, you know, might not actually win the day immediately, uh, especially in, in this terrain. Now, flashing forward uh, from June 1877, to the very end of September, very beginning of October, 1877. Um, uh, the final battle was at Snake Creek, uh, just north of the Bear Paw Mountains uh, in, in Montana, about uh, 40 miles, uh, 30, 40 miles south of the, the Medicine Line, the Canadian border. And by that point, the Nezers families had been outrunning the army uh, had been consistently ahead of them uh, for you know, most of three and a half months. Uh, they referred to General Howard as, uh, uh, you know, by the, you know, he was not only uh, cut arm, but he was also general day after tomorrow uh, because he was so far behind them. And they had pursued a very, uh, Quick path through the uh, uh, through the Buffalo Plains of Montana, um, but towards the end uh, there was a leadership switch, uh, and uh, Chief Looking Glass, who had taken over the the tactical side uh, of of the Nesper's bands, uh, had had wanted them to slow down. And so they were slowly making their way to the Canadian border. Uh, I think in large part, they still had this herd, and the herd was, was looking ragged and fatigued, and, and so this was a way to, uh, to be, strengthen their herd before they embarked on this new life in Canada so they could start in a position of wealth and strength. Uh, they uh, had a chance to... Uh, it, you know, they finally found some buffalo, so they had a chance to, to hunt some buffalo, which also meant 
you know, wealth, but also sustenance. Uh, and so they have slowed down. They knew that Howard was way behind them, really hopelessly behind them, but they didn't know that Howard had sent a message uh, to Nelson Miles, uh, who was the, the commander of the uh, garrison at the Tongue River Cantonment. And Miles and a, uh, uh, his, his cavalry uh, raced uh, towards the Canadian border uh, in hopes of intercepting the Nez Perce bands. And at Snake Creek, uh, they, they surrounded them. You know, the, the, uh, in previous battles, there were moments when the army had surprised them, when, when they weren't expecting uh, troops from other garrisons to come in. Um, but the Nez Perses had always been able to hold on to their horses. And as long as they had their horse herd with them, they had the means and capacity to escape. Um, but at Snake Creek, uh, at, at the Bear's Paw, uh, they, uh, their, their herds were stampeded uh, and they were surrounded and besieged. It was possible for uh, many of the uh, Nez Perses to escape. Uh, it was a siege, but it was, uh, you know, it's still possible to cross the siege lines and make your way to Canada. Um, but for uh, many of the children, for the elderly, for the men people who were sick or wounded and, and suffering after three and a half months of, of, of flight, it was impossible for them to flee. The warriors were very well dug in to the, the hills that rose from this creek. It was, it was a, a, a series of, of folded, uh, it, the landscape was very folded and it was very easy to dig in. Uh, and so they were able to fight the cavalry to a uh, uh, to a standstill, to a stalemate. Uh, and there was some hope that uh, that Sitting Bull uh, up in Canada would hear from the uh, Nez Perses who had escaped and would send uh, uh, send Lakota warriors down uh, and and uh, lift the siege. But that never happened. Uh, in the meantime, numerous uh, great chiefs, uh, uh, Tohozo, uh, Lean Elk, Looking Glass, Alicot, Joseph's brother, uh, were, were killed in the battle. Uh, and in the end, uh, really, even though Joseph was someone who uh, was not a war chief, uh, had relatively uh, uh, less status among the, the leadership uh, of the Nez Perce bands. He really was the last leader left uh, who, who could negotiate. And negotiation was really his forte. Uh, and so he sought terms with, uh, with Nelson Miles and with General Howard, who had arrived on the scene, uh, and received an assurance that uh, after the winter was over, he and his people would be allowed to, to resettle on the Nez Perce Reservation. Uh, but uh, after they had surrendered, uh, General Sherman uh, essentially reversed that, that assurance, uh, and reversed that promise and backed away from that promise. And instead, uh, they were uh, jailed for the winter uh, at Fort Leavenworth and then sent into exile in, in Indian territory in what's now Oklahoma.
Can you touch a little, elaborate a little bit on the uh, trade in uh, material culture after the battles in which uh, Howard amassed a large collection of artifacts? There were battles where um, Nesper's families were on the run. There were many things that they couldn't take with them. And at various points, uh, they would dig caches and put these objects that they couldn't carry with them in these caches and bury them. And in a way, it reflected you know, a certain desperation, uh, but also a certain optimism that they would come back. Uh, and after the battle, uh, particularly a battle uh, in Nez Perce country along the, the Clearwater River, right where it meets Cottonwood Creek, uh, the uh, army came through and they found these caches and uprooted them. And when they unburied them, they found... Uh, they found evidence of something that Howard really didn't understand in his negotiations with Joseph to try and establish them as small yeoman farmers. Howard really didn't understand the reality of Nez Perce wealth. And what they found were uh, silver and china place settings that dated back to uh, the fur trade with the Hudson Bay Company. Uh, they found these uh, uh, spectacular uh, beaded uh, uh, horse bridles and beaded uh, garments, and uh, it, it, there was just incredible evidence of uh, the, the fact that Joseph Spann's traditional life uh, as, as herders uh, was, uh, was really lucrative, uh, that they were wealthy, that moving to the reservation, that giving up their traditional way of life uh, was an incredible step down. Now, people had often commented on the high quality of Nez Perce beadwork, uh, but there was no real trade in Nez Perce artifacts. While uh, it, you know the the it, you know all of these items were items that people used in ritual in everyday life, uh, but when the soldier dug them up, uh, it you know, it was uh, you, you know, there's an immediate market for, for these artifacts. If suddenly uh, it, these weren't you know, vital cultural items, uh, they were collectibles. And the soldiers collected, uh, there was an army surgeon who was known for paying top dollar uh, for, for Nez Perce artifacts uh, at that point in the war. And uh, you know, there was a sense not only were they beautiful and divorced from context, they, they could be decorative objects for white people, uh, but the very fact that uh, you know, these were essentially unburied, the very fact that the Nez Perses were being driven from the land and were essentially being wiped out, uh, this only made them more desirable, more, more valuable, uh, more, uh, uh, you know, more romantic. Now, General Howard, over the course of his life, did amass a large collection of Indian artifacts. Uh, uh, you, you know, this was something that I discovered when I was uh, just uh, searching online, and I came to uh, uh, the website for an auction house that was auctioning off things in General Howard's collection. Um, but I, I noticed that there there weren't Nez Perce artifacts in those lots that were being sold to the highest bidder. Uh, so. You know, it's unclear to me whether Howard personally collected and profited from uh, the Nez Perce War, 
uh, or whether uh, he just developed over the course of his career a, a taste uh, for for Indian collectibles. Appreciate the clarification. Uh, so for our final question, um, I wanted to go into a little bit on the post-war memory. So why do you think Joseph, um, at the 1904 Carlisle Indian School graduate graduation, why did he ultimately defer, or do you argue that, uh, defer to Howard's speech and his sort of narration of the memory of the war? Why did Joseph capitulate um, at that 1904 Carlisle Indian School graduation, which they both attended. And then also, can you touch a little bit on uh, Charles Scott Erskine Wood, lest we forget him, a a colorful character from your book? Um, uh, How did the memory of the war uh, figure into his uh, 1900 anarcho-democratic, I say democratic, but then he did not really like being called democratic his critique of u.s imperialism and imperial markets um and wood it was a the son of a former uh, cotton farmer why uh, can you touch on um how the memory of the war affected uh wood as well so in 1904 27 years after the nez Perce war and really just months before joseph's death uh joseph and howard were both uh Uh, sitting on the dais as honored guests at the Carlisle Indian School for graduation exercises. With them was uh, Richard Henry Pratt. Uh, It was his last graduation as headmaster of the Carlisle Indian School. And for for Joseph, I mean, in many ways, it must have been just a tragic and horrifying sight to see, uh, you know, Nez Perce children and children of many other nations uh, with their uh, heads shaved, dressed in military, uh, military uniforms, doing military exercises, speaking in English. They were punished if they spoke uh, uh, their, their native languages and essentially embodying Richard Henry Pratt's call to uh, uh, kill the Indian and save the man. This was uh, uh, it, you know, his nightmare. It was why he had fought the Nez Perce War. Um, and, and at the same time, uh, when Howard gave uh, a speech that seemed to be begging for forgiveness and absolution from Joseph, I think it's really the closest Howard ever came to really admitting that, that he was wrong. There, there are other ways he seemed to show his guilt. He, he could never stop writing about the Nez Perce War, for example. But Joseph stood up and, you know, he... he uh, he didn't do his talking in English. He was maybe what, one of the uh, few Native Americans to be able to speak their language and not be punished at the Carlisle Indian School. But Joseph looked Howard in the eye and said, I forgive you. And you know, that was really puzzling to me. You know, what was going on? Had Joseph just given up? And to me, I, I found a little traction on this issue when I was reading letters that Howard and Pratt had written in the immediate aftermath of the graduation ceremony, uh, where you know, he forgives them, and then in their letters, uh, they uh, almost immediately afterwards, they're advocating for much more money to be channeled to uh, Joseph's band uh, that at that point had... had uh, uh, was 
20 years out of exile uh, from the Indian Territory, but was still uh, in uh, exile in the Northwest uh, uh, on the Colville Indian Reservation. And it seemed that Joseph, you can really see how he never stopped advocating, never stopped, you know, in a very pragmatic way, uh, trying to get the best deal that he could get at any given moment uh, for, for his people. Uh, and I, I see that, that final uh, absolution that he seems to give to Howard uh, less as a surrender uh, and more uh, as a uh, uh, moment of opportunity that he sees uh, to try and uh, get uh, resources uh, for his people uh, so they could uh, live, uh, live their lives. Um, with respect to Charles Erskine Scott Wood, um, Erskine Wood was a man who uh, was West Point class of 1874, uh, which meant he was too young to really understand the, the politics, uh, the stakes of the Civil War. And at West Point, if you're there from 1870 to 1874, there was this palpable sense that you had missed the big one. Uh, and there was a real sense that uh, it was unclear uh, what purpose serving in the army served. Um, for Wood, you know, he was kind of a tabula rasa in terms of his politics. Uh, he really liked West Point, uh, not because of any noble idea of serving his country, but because he thought uh, uh, they gave you know, really great waltzes. He, he loved to waltz above anything else. Um, yeah, and when uh, when he when the war began, uh, he had been serving in the Northwest. Uh, he had befriended Oliver Otis Howard, uh, uh, and he uh, had he, the war. Uh, he found himself uh, being being put uh, on Howard's staff, uh, and he found a purpose in his life. Uh, that he just, he had always been kind of aimless, even uh, after West Point uh, in the army, just trying to figure out what to do. Um, but, you know, he went through the war. It was the most exciting experience uh, in his life up to that point. And then he met Joseph at the surrender. And in the 24 hours that followed, he was Joseph's minder. And they spent much of that time talking. And it, uh, it opened his eyes, you know, it awakened him to something that he had never felt before. Uh, and within a few years, he had washed out of the army and he had hung out a, a shingle and started practicing law in Portland, Oregon. And then very early on, he uh, found great success as a lawyer and it would give him all kinds of financial stability. Uh, but at the same time, his politics uh, moved farther and farther to the left. Uh, and he was doing a lot of thinking about the Nez Perce War, about the country's broken promises to, to Joseph and his people. Uh, and right at that time, uh, the, the U.S. Uh, had promised independence to Filipino freedom fighters if they uh, allied with the U.S. during the Spanish-American War. And then they rescinded that promise uh, and seized the Philippines as an American territory. Uh, and uh, Howard uh, 
or um, uh, Wood, he was uh, appalled by the U.S. conduct of the Spanish-American War, and there were many Democrats who were who were uh, critical of the this Republican War uh, and the, particularly the imperial adventure in the Philippines. Uh, but and many of them were uh, racist Southerners who didn't want an American territory that was full of another dark-skinned race. Uh, and Wood, when he took to the stump through Oregon in 1900, uh, railing against uh, uh, the American imperialism, sometimes he would try out uh, those, those racist democratic lines. But at the same time, he began thinking about uh, what equality meant. Uh, and you know, if Oliver Otis Howard, his, his early mentor and role model, really thought of equality in terms of the ability to assimilate to you know, a singular view of American citizenship. For Wood, uh, he developed a sense of equality as a, a, a much more pluralistic concept, that there are many ways to be different and still equal. Uh, the way he put it was, uh, you know, if all men are equal, then, then uh, everyone has a right to go to hell if they want to. You know, they can uh, live traditional lives. They can worship different gods, uh, and he, you know, he uh, uh, he declared himself an anarchist. Uh, he then became uh, allied with just about every progressive movement uh, of the early 20th century. And he's a real gift to the historian because he lives forever. You know, he's someone who, when he was eight years old, saw President Lincoln on his way to his first inaugural address, 1860, 1861. And when he was 90 years old in uh, 1942, he uh, showed up at the San Francisco headquarters of the Immigration and Naturalization Service uh, and uh, demanded that they release his friend who was being held as a uh, Japanese enemy alien. Uh, and he then wrote a letter you know, protesting the internment of Japanese Americans. And between the you know 1860 and 1942, uh, it, you know it's a remarkable journey uh, through, and it really shows the the bridge that uh, uh, it, it, of the Nez Perce War between the uh, it, the Civil War and Reconstruction and then the causes and concerns of the 20th century. And as Wood made this remarkable evolution, uh, he again and again uh, came back to his time uh, with Chief Joseph. Uh, he, they met after the war. Uh, he sent his son to live with Chief Joseph uh, over two summers in 1892 and 1893. Uh, and throughout his life, uh, Chief Joseph was was his his guiding light, uh, and you see how Joseph is this really important uh, uh, figure who 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 really worked his way uh, into into the DNA uh, of the the modern uh, uh, American left. Well, I thank you for being on our podcast today, uh, Professor Sharfstein. Is there any uh, anything that we can expect from you next uh, that you can disclose at this time? Or do you plan on taking a vacation? Or what's what's next for you? Yeah, that's a great question. I, you know, 
both of my books. My, my first book was really about race and the color line, uh, the invisible line. Uh, this book is about uh, Western conquest and citizenship and liberty and equality. And to a large degree, they're, they're about uh, what values make us American? You know, how do we define ourselves as an American and how, uh, how law works its way into uh, our, our identity as Americans? I thought for a third book, uh, I would want to focus on immigration and assimilation. And I'm, I'm now doing uh, uh, some research uh, into uh, uh, immigrant communities and uh, uh, their, their, uh, their, their conflicts with each other uh, in, in the early 20th century. Uh, and, uh, you know, at this point, it's still very much in its early stages. Uh, but it's uh, uh, so far been uh, a, a uh, very exciting uh, new uh, way to explore uh, this this enduring theme. I'm sure our listeners will be looking out for that. Uh, again, thank you for being on our, the podcast. This is uh, Ryan Tripp uh, on behalf of the New Books Network, the Native American Studies and History Channel, signing off. I'll see you next time.